Tēnā koutou no mai haere mai. Good evening and welcome to Q&A. I'm Jack Tain. Tonight, how long is the wage subsidy actually going to continue? What we're really focused on here are the businesses who, who will be struggling to get to that 50%, even under Level 2. A new poll shows an enormous surge of support for Labour and the Prime Minister. We'll ask our panel if it could spell the end of Simon Bridges as Nationals' leader. And then, the man who described us as having a rock star economy. When the lockdown's being lifted, and it's being lifted in New Zealand as we speak, um, that we're likely to get a, a stronger spring back, a stronger bounce in economic activity in New Zealand than we're seeing in, in, in Australia. We'll get to that interview shortly. But first, perhaps the most keenly anticipated detail in Thursday's budget was confirmation the government will extend the wage subsidy for another eight weeks. To qualify, businesses have to have a 50% drop in revenue in the month before their application. But applications don't open until June 10th. So that means in the month beforehand, we will have moved to level two. We may even move to level one. Kids will have had weeks back at school. Shops will be open. Economic activity will have significantly increased. This is a tough subject because livelihoods are at stake. But if a business can't reach 50% revenue when we're at level two or even at level one, is that business still viable? Or could the billions in subsidies be better directed elsewhere? I asked Finance Minister Grant Robertson how long he anticipates the wage subsidy will be in place. Well, what we've said is that when the 12-week scheme ends, which for those who applied at the very beginning is the 9th of June, that there is now an eight-week extension from there available for those whose turnover has dropped by 50% in the previous month. You'll remember it was 30% for the scheme originally. And our plan is that that is the extension for now. But I think what we've shown right throughout uh, this process is that we've been flexible, we've responded to need as it's arisen. And so we are now targeting targeting more. I think that's the right thing to do as more and more businesses get back to work under level two. But what we're really focused on here are the businesses who, who will be struggling to get to that 50% even under level two, tourism, hospitality, retail, etc. So it's targeted. Uh, I'm not in a position of saying that's it, it's a total cutoff, but this is now us showing that we are focusing more and it's for that eight-week period. I want to know though, at the, at the end of the eight-week period, what is your strategy? Is there the potential potential that you will continue to extend that wage subsidy or target it even more than it currently is so? Well, I think you can see from the direction of travel that we started with a very broad wage subsidy scheme that was appropriate as we were heading towards level four, that mm. we knew that most businesses wouldn't be able to operate. Now we're moving to something that's much more targeted. We'll assess that as we go. I think that's been the strength of our response. We've been decisive, but we've also been flexible. And so we want to see where we get to. But I think you can see mm. from that direction of travel, we're moving towards a much more targeted approach. But those businesses that can't hit 50% revenue at level two want some certainty. And you've seen what the streets are like today. There is certainly a, a significant pickup in terms of economic activity. These are tough conversations, but at the end of that eight week period, if a business is not yet at 50% of its usual revenue, isn't it time to say maybe this business isn't viable? 
Look, and what we've tried to do is support the vulnerable but the viable, and I think the range of initiatives we've got underway do that. So, for example, we will be encouraging businesses to look at the Small Business Cash Flow Loan Scheme. Through the Tourism Recovery Package itself, a big chunk of our initial contribution to that is actually to support businesses to transition, either to looking at the domestic market, for instance, or potentially making use of the changes we've made to insolvency law to allow for hibernation of businesses. So yes, this is the period in which businesses do need to be starting to make their long-term plans, to be thinking about how they restructure and reorientate their business to be able to trade as we move out of the COVID-19 environment. What I'm saying is, though, it's important that we're flexible about the way we provide ongoing assistance and support, mm. and we've done that up to now, and we're going to keep doing that. I saw some really interesting comments uh, from the boss of Pan Pacific, uh, Matt Brady, a, a, you know, a significant tourism employer in New Zealand, who says that he thinks the government has effectively a moral responsibility to support tourism businesses for as long as New Zealand's border remains closed to international visitors. He says it was the government's decision to close the border. It's the government's responsibility to prop up those businesses. How do you respond to that? Well, I think we've shown that we've taken our responsibilities very seriously here and provided significant amounts of support to New Zealand businesses and households to get through this. The issue we've got is that the closing of the borders or the border restrictions we've had in place have been incredibly significant to our success. And the reality is that those restrictions are going to last in some form for some considerable time. And indeed, I don't think it's just about our border restrictions either. I think even as they are lifted and they're lifted in other parts of the world, people will be reluctant to travel in the large numbers that they have been in, in the near term. So I think the change that's happening to the tourism industry is one that is going to have a long-lasting effect. The people I speak with in the tourism industry absolutely get the fact that they need to reorientate their business models. That's why we've agreed a recovery plan with the industry, which the first $400 million contribution from the government in the budget was for. So I'd rather focus on that on supporting the businesses to transition uh, and carry on that way. The border restrictions are going to be with us for some time, so I think um, we have to be realistic about the impact of that. Can you promise that this debt will not be left to the next generation of workers? Well, look, you know, as we know and as you will have seen from the work we did while we've been in government, we've been very careful about the amount of money that we have borrowed and we left ourselves in a position where when the rainy day arrived, we've been able to borrow and still end up with our debt at lower levels than what uh, other countries have. It will take time to start to pay that debt down, but you can actually see in the budget that we are beginning to move to do that by the end of the projection period. We've got to keep investing in our economy, growing our economy to allow that to happen. In terms of those future generations, the way I look at it is those are the young people of today, and I want to make sure that they're growing up in households where their parents have job, mm. jobs and where there is food on the table for them. To me, that would be the greatest scarring of all, was if we didn't do enough to support them now. In future years, we will all be responsible for ensuring we move back towards a sustainable fiscal path. For now, we're doing the responsible thing by supporting those younger generations.
Roberts. But this is a, a generation that, as it is, struggles to access the housing market, a, genera a generation where people have many tens or, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars of student debt, a generation that is preparing to pay for superannuation for baby boomers who have vehemently opposed any changes to our superannuation entitlements, a generation that knows already it's going to face billions of dollars in expenses as we adapt to climate change. Is it fair to leave this kind of expense to this generation? Well, I don't think that's what we're doing. I mean, what we show in the in the budget projections is that those levels of debt as a percentage start to decline. And I just don't think it's that useful for us to have this kind of debate that sets generations against each other. We are all now in the grip of a one in 100 year shock to our economy. It's a global pandemic. No generation is to blame for it. What we've actually got to do now is work through how we get through this. And yes, we're going to have some elevated levels of debt from where we have been before. Before. But our economy can handle that, Jack. We're robust going into this, we'll be robust coming out of it, and that debt will progressively reduce as we grow our economy. But simply through growth, is that the answer? We, we, we get out of this hole, maybe $160, $170 billion in debt, by relying on a growing economy? That's a big part of what we've got to do, and you can actually see that already happening in the budget, and that's why we're taking the, the approach of investing. I mean, there would be another approach right now, which would be to pass off the, the impact of this onto households right now today and say that we're prepared to let unemployment grow out, uh, balloon out to you know, 20, 30 per cent mm. or whatever. We're not prepared to do that. We want to invest in all generations right now, and then we will all have a collective responsibility of managing that debt into the future. But, but what it, it sounds like you are suggesting, Minister, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that, is that essentially you are advocating for more of the same but at a bigger scale. So we look to invest in the economy that we have at the moment and the economy that we have relied upon for growth over the last 10 or 12 years just on a bigger scale. I wonder if you can give me... Um, like a, a big idea. Do you have any? Do you have any grand vision, Minister, for a part of the New Zealand economy where you see you see real potential for for significant sustainable growth? Something that isn't just tourism or sending milk powder to China. Absolutely. I think there's a range of those, and we've been working on them already. Let's just pick out what we can do in renewable energy or the hydrogen-based part of our economy. You know, we already have partnerships underway with, with both international investors and local ones about turning ourselves into the capital of green hydrogen of the world. Mm. Um, we Just before we went into this, we're in discussions with the Japanese government and with Japanese companies about how they want that to be supplied from here. That's an area where we would be growing high-paying jobs to be part of that. The same can apply to the digital sector, and we've just seen you know, the investment Microsoft's been prepared to make here. We can build off the fact that we are that, uh, have that entrepreneurial spirit in New Zealand. All of those things we were working on to make our economy more sustainable and more inclusive and more productive before we got into COVID-19 are still there, and we will build on those strengths on the other side. What do you think of the way our foreign minister is handling New Zealand's relationship with China at the moment? Oh, I think, you know, I mean, our relationship with China is incredibly strong. It's got long, deep roots. Um, when you go to China, you hear about those four firsts that we were involved in as they became a market economy. But what and about this the WTO debate over Taiwan? our free trade agreement.
Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think on the, in, the, in the particular instance of Taiwan's observer status at the WHO, we've been really clear that, that that's, they've got something to offer. They're, they're a place that has been through a lot as part of this, and they've got expertise, so we want them to be an observer. That's a perfectly acceptable position. They've been an observer before. Understand that from time to time there might be a difference of opinion between ourselves and China about issues like that, but actually the relationship is fundamentally sound and nothing has changed about our view around a one-China policy. A couple of quick questions before we let you go, Minister. We have a story tonight on council rates. I've asked you this before, but I want to ask you again. Should councils be increasing rates given COVID-19? And I'm unfortunately going to give you the same answer, Jack, which is that it will be a decision council by council. I'm sure councils around New Zealand are mindful of the fact that their ratepayers are under mm. a lot of pressure. They have to balance that against the fact that they've got projects that are going to be really important for their recovery and rebuild out of COVID-19. That balance is a tough one. We've made decisions as central government around tax relief, particularly things like the loss carryback scheme or depreciation on commercial and industrial buildings. We are trying to find ways of relieving the burden off people. I'm sure councils will be doing precisely the same thing in their area, but ultimately those decisions are theirs to make based on their circumstances. But we're all aware, mm. uh, for those of us in positions of responsibility, that people are doing it tough out there and there have to be ways of mitigating the impact of that. Finance Minister Grant Robertson. And I asked him when he thinks New Zealand might be in a position to move to level one. He says Cabinet will assess the data and start talking about timings on Monday of next week. The panel is next with a huge swing in a new poll. Is this it for Simon Bridges? And then businesses are back, but is it right for councils to raise rates as Kiwis try to recover from enforced hibernation? I would have really expected a reduction rather than an increase. Kia ora te whana. welcome back to Q&A. A News Hub Read Research poll released tonight shows a massive surge in support for Labour and the Prime Minister off the back of the COVID-19 lockdown. Labour leads National 56 to 30 in the party vote. New Zealand First is under 3% and in the preferred Prime Minister stakes, Jacinda Ardern is at 59.5%. National leader Simon Bridges is at just 4.5%. Let's bring in our panel this evening, Laila Hare, unionist and former MP, and Ben Thomas, former national political staffer, now a public relations consultant. Kia ora kōrua, thanks for being with us. Laila, I'll begin with you. Is Simon Bridges gone? Well, I have no idea, and I don't think anyone else, you know, really does either. But it seems to me that these results are far less a protest against Bridges' leadership of the National Party than they are an endorsement of the government's handling of the COVID-19 crisis. I mean, we saw also in the poll tonight that 92% of us support the government's moves in relation, you know, to the to pandemic. The lockdown. That's mm. right. Uh, you say that. I mean, National's still at 30% in the party vote. Simon Bridges at 4.5% in the preferred Prime Minister rankings. There's always been a bit of a discrepancy in, in most polls between those numbers. But what do you make of these results, Ben? Nationals should be at 40% most of the time. They consolidated that entire right-wing vote, apart from a little bit of straggling with ACT, um, you know, a decade ago. 30% uh, is catastrophic 
for them. Uh, it's not the same as, ne as Labour being on 30% where the Greens might be on 10 or 15. Uh, it, it shows like a real draining of support. Um, you know, look, if you were investing in Simon Bridges' futures right now, you probably wouldn't be paying a high price for them. Why do you think it's so bad? It's not bad that National are down, right? The Prime Minister has done an absolutely outstanding job and you would have to say the government's uh, public health response has been outstanding and has been a huge success. The Labour won't be on, on those, poll, those polling numbers when we come to the election. Um, we have huge waves of unemployment to hit. We haven't really seen the economic downturn due to COVID just yet. The problem for National is that, you know, as uh, commentators sometimes say, the phone might just be off the hook with the electorate. They might not be interested in hearing anything he's got to say during the campaign. And when you put up a guy who's on 4% uh, preferred prime minister against a prime minister who's on 60% preferred prime minister head-to-head -head in a presidential-style election, he'll just be burned alive. Yeah, a presidential-style election, the party vote is still technically what matters. Do you agree with Ben, Lyle? Um I agree that they're lambs to the slaughter. I just don't think that changing the head lamb is going to make much of a difference to them over the next few months. And in fact, I mean, of course, they'll be weighing up, you know, will we rescue a few mm. seats here or there with a change in leadership? But Simon Bridges wants to stay in the leadership. It looks like there'll be a fight if there's going to be a change. There is nobody within the caucus who anybody recognises mm. as having any sort of, you know, consensus support from the caucus, let alone the public, you know, the wider public. Um, so, you know, I would expect that, that they're weighing up two equally horrendous-looking possibilities for them over the next few months, and that the not-rock-the-boat option, in my view, is likely to prevail. See, that's interesting. You see it at the moment. Do you see it as a, as a poison chalice of sorts? Well, I, I just don't... I don't see the public responding to a leader of a small political party when we have a leader of an entire country who has the confidence of the public you know, at that, the It's interesting, though, that, you know, because when you, when you think about Simon Bridges' performance over the last couple of years, there have been upteen occasions where people have said, oh, he's cooked it now, he's done, he'll be done, he'll be gone as, as the National Party leader within a month or so, and he has survived at every point up until now. I mean, National has maintained a relatively strong party vote Absolutely. while it's been in opposition. I mean, but, but clearly he has a problem with tone and with sentiment, doesn't he? he? And, and that, that and might be an individual problem that some of his colleagues... He's, he's a scrapper well, and he's a survivor. But if you just look at the response to the poll tonight, there was, you know, admittedly probably selectively edited footage where his response was to take a crack at the Prime Minister's hair and dye jobs. I mean, it was completely inappropriate. It just showed this huge tone deafness. If anything is more popular than the Prime Minister right now in New Zealand, it's the Prime Minister's hair. It looks amazing. Um, it just shows a complete inability to read the room. And I think that his colleagues seeing that as the response to these, you know, terrible poll ratings would just have their heads in their hands and saying, well, you know, what do we do from here? What do they do? Is it Judith Collins if they indeed decide to roll him? Is it Todd Muller? Well that's, <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. I mean, Todd Muller, you know, I'm not sure if anyone could pick him out of a lineup. He would have zero name recognition amongst the New Zealand public. 
On the other hand, if you look back, uh, National was doing a lot better before Simon Bridges had high name recognition. Um, you know, National is a very strong brand as a party, and what they're probably looking for right now is a leader who is not a drag on that brand. And see, the thing to me is, is, is I would have thought the strategy is very obvious for National going into this crisis. They could expect that if, if the public health response was successful, anywhere near as successful as it's been, then perhaps just keeping quiet for a month or two mm. and then waiting until we really feel the economic bite from COVID-19. That's the time to strike, to form an argument like they might have after 2008 where they say, yes, Jacinda Ardern has done a reasonably good job of guiding us through this, Im this immediate health crisis, but we are the party to rebuild yeah, the economy. they're not weighing things up two months ago. They're weighing things up now, and they are in that position regardless of who is leading the National Party now. I mean, I think it's fair to say that the Prime Minister kind of has a, a quality now of being the leader of the country, not just of the Labour Party, not just of the government, not just of the sort of machinery of state, which actually puts National and whoever of the, is the leader of the National Party beneath her leadership mm. and beneath the leadership, you know, the sort of core leadership of the government. So, you know, I actually don't think any of them are going to be able to kind of shift that perception. Mm. What may shift over the next few months is public confidence in the government's response as the economic crisis deepens. And at that point, again, I mean, we've seen from pre-COVID that National are quite capable with their current leadership and the current team of convincing people that they have a better alternative. So, you know, I think there is equally likely mm. to choose to choose that sort of path of least resistance. New Zealand first, 2.7 in the News Hub Read Research poll. 2.7% party vote. What does Winston Peters do, Ben? Make some noise. <laughs> Retires gracefully, makes it possible for some of his decent MPs to Lila. sort of join the bottom of the Labour Party list and get re-elected. New Zealand First has never made it past 5% in government, um, in at the, uh, after 1999, after 2008, uh, they failed to make those three shots. Is Ben Thomas calling calling a New Zealand first being shunted out of Parliament tonight? That, that's actually been. A, uh, I've long predicted that um, they get votes when they're oppositional. They don't get votes as a party of the establishment. They've been very careful to try and make themselves oppositional even within government in this term, you know, squashing things like um, uh, getting rid of um, the three strikes law, um, mm. you know, probably putting the kibosh on fair pay agreements, killing capital gains tax. Mm. Now, they haven't been doing that during the crisis. Uh, Winston Peters, to his credit, has been a team player. That's probably been bad for their brand. Um, and. I think that uh, the Prime Minister could probably expect a few fireworks from her junior coalition partner yeah, in the coming months. Yeah, but there's also the kind of age factor, the possible ready-for-retirement factor, the um, pending or ongoing investigation, mm. I presume, by the Serious Fraud Office um, on the New Zealand First Foundation, was it? Um, and so, you know, I, I'm actually being kind of serious in suggesting that it might be that point in the kind of cycle of that party's life that some permanent decisions have to be made internally about its future. And there are MPs mm -hmm. and ministers within the party, you know, Tracy 
um, nice. Martin, yep. for instance, who would be, I would have thought, perfectly at home in a Labour Party caucus, and there's going to be quite a lot of opportunities for that, it looks like. 72 seats on the projection Absolutely. from today. Yeah, um, I think their list was only 67 <laughs> long at the last election. Well, this is a great opportunity for Labour to actually address the competence gap that they've got in Cabinet and basically do a worldwide executive search <laughs> to start getting some talent mm. in there. Uh, well, I'm sure it'll be fascinating to watch uh, and I'm sure there will be many polls uh, to come in the next few weeks and months and we will keep a close eye on those. I very quickly want to ask you uh, about the budget. Grant Roberts and you heard us uh, in that conversation there, just, just looking at some of the detail around that $3.2 billion extension to the wage subsidy scheme. If you go through Treasury's predictions or forecasts uh, released on Thursday, they are suggesting that we might not have our borders open to all international tourists until April of next year. That is an awfully long time to maintain a wage subsidy, if that's indeed what the government would look to do. Do you think they would consider something like that, Ben? And look, April is optimistic. If there's no vaccine and we're still going on an elimination strategy, it's highly unlikely it will be April. Um, no, I mean, it's not feasible to prop up uh, companies for, you know, a year, two years. Mm. At that point, you have to start looking at, you know, restructuring, pivoting. Mm. That may not be possible. What do you think, Lana? Uh, I think that there will be much better uses of that funding sort of beyond the eight-week eight week extension. Um, it is securing a few people's livelihoods, not just the business owners, obviously, mm. but the workers who the subsidy yeah, is course. directed at. It's saving a few people from going into the absolute indignity of our social security system in the short term, which is a good thing. But to prolong that at the same time as not increasing you know, benefits and improving the social security for people who are likely to be at least for a period out of time mm. out of work, I think would probably be an error beyond that point. All right. Thank you so much for your time and insights this evening, Lila Hurry and Ben Thomas. Jenny is back with tonight. What do you have planned, Jenny? Thanks, Jack. It is good to be back tonight. A new regime as thousands of students return to their classes again this morning. So did your kids' school follow the rules? A team of five million and a little bit more. Our population reaches a milestone and will there be a post-lockdown baby boom? Untouched and now unvisited, a mayor's pitch to get you exploring the stunning Mackenzie district. Plus the daring rescue of a rock climber who fell 150 metres off a cliff face in Australia. Do join us for all that and tomorrow's weather at 10.25. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can post on our Facebook page Thanks. or email us. Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Facing a rates hike. Next, we look at the pressure on Kiwi councils to keep rates down in these tough economic times. And a message of hope from across the ditch. The Aussie tourists may very well save the New Zealand tourism industry in, 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 a, in a pretty big way. Hoki Mayanor, welcome back to Q&A. From Northland to Rakiura, Stewart Island to the Chathams, local councils are under immense pressure to figure out how they'll pay for projects and keep services running. Over the lockdown, they've lost millions of dollars. But should they be hiking up our rates when households and businesses are suffering? Fena Owen reports. Palmerston North florist Lindley Wilson's relieved to be back in her shop after five weeks of lost income. It was during the lockdown she learnt her rates were due to be hiked up. 
it was a, a, a shock uh, when I realised that we were going to be paying an extra $1,000 on top of the $16,500 that we already pay. Palmerston North City Council is proposing a rates increase of 4.4%. It's really unrealistic to even consider putting the rates up at this time um, when they're already so high and that I would have really expected a reduction rather than an increase. Around 60% of a council's funding stream comes from rates. It's that 40% that's taken a hit. OK, Dave, so you're out in the back blocks today. I'm in tariffs, if that's the back blocks. <laughs> President of Local Government New Zealand, Dave Cull. Well, councils all around the country are having to confront the issue of their funding lines having been reduced, but the, the needs for their spending having remained the same, or in fact, in some cases, Increased. Palmerston North has uh, lost 4.5 million, uh, and that's come from uh, loss of fees, uh, venues being closed, uh, everything from parking to uh, library fees and pool fees. Of the 67 local authorities, 21 councils have indicated they'll reduce rates, with Queenstown Lakes District giving their ratepayers the biggest reduction. Pre-COVID, Wellington City Council had proposed a 9% rates hike, but that's since been reduced to 5.1%. They've dropped it back down from what they proposed because there was a bit of a backlash. And I do um, think there will be still a backlash. Being a pensioner and on a fixed income, I'm not too happy, especially when they're spending money on nice-to-have things instead of necessities. Wellington still has no central library and some other key buildings are not up to code. And then there are the water infrastructure problems. So from all sides, the pressure's on councils to look hard at their options. Whether it's deprioritising some spending and therefore being able to reduce their rates increases, or whether they're borrowing some uh, a little to make up for um, what they would normally take in rates. Um, and some councils are taking something out of their, if they've got reserves. Eleven councils have so far committed or signalled a commitment to a rates freeze. They include Dunedin, Christchurch, Tasman, Taupo District, Waikato, Hawke's Bay and Bay of Plenty regional councils. Now is not the time to put up council taxes. Jordan Williams of the Taxpayers' Union. There are a lot of struggling New Zealanders out there at the moment that are looking at every single bill and then councils are saying, we're going to increase yours. That's not fair. The Taxpayers' Union applauds the Christchurch City Council as a role model. It has debt even higher than Auckland on a per ratepayer basis. The Labour Mayor down there, Leanne Dalziel, has said we're going to strive for a rates freeze. We're not going to put up council taxes this year. If she can do it, so should every other council in New Zealand. There's been some intensive debates around council tables about what the priorities are and how they can um, lessen the burden on their ratepayers at this time. There's no right answer for every council. Whether it's uh, street uh, work, streetscapes, um, improvements to facilities like uh, our library, our stadium, or just public housing, uh, a number of those different projects need to continue. And it's council's role to stimulate uh, that local investment and local growth. It is concerning that some councils are making the argument that their role is economic development. 
that's not the role of local government. And particularly because the tax, unlike central government, which relies mostly on the ability to pay, to use rates to funnel money back into the economy and call it economic development is a false economy. Because every dollar you're putting in, you're taking out of the same community. Most councils have now invited struggling ratepayers to apply for their rates to be deferred. Simply saying, oh, we're going to give you a little bit more time to pay, but we're still going to increase the costs. That's just kicking the can down the road. The Taxpayers' Union have an online dashboard of what councils are doing with their rates. It shows Thames Coromandel and Tauranga as proposing the highest rates hikes of over 7%. Meanwhile, Palmerston North ratepayers have just submitted on their 4.4% rise. The Mayor has some good news for them. It's expected that that uh, will reduce uh, significantly, and we'll be debating that in the coming week. And while Lindley's submission to council was a bit of a brick bat, she's hoping this week it'll be all bouquets. Fina Owen with that report. Up next on Q&A, New Zealand went hard on its lockdown, but we should get a big economic bounce back. And there's some good news for tourism as well. New Zealand and Australia have both drawn international praise for their responses to COVID-19. Our lockdown was a bit more strict, but as a result, our economy may now be poised to bounce back faster than the Aussies. Paul Bloxham is HSBC's Chief Economist for Australia, New Zealand and Global Commodities. I asked him how he compared New Zealand and Australia's initial response. Well, certainly New Zealand took a more aggressive approach with its lockdown versus Australia's suppression measures and social distancing. Uh, and so what we're likely to see as a result of that is a much sharper contraction in economic activity in New Zealand in the second quarter um, than Australia saw. But we're also expecting that likewise, when the lockdown's being lifted, and it's being lifted in New Zealand as we speak, um, that we're likely to get a, a stronger spring back, a stronger bounce in economic activity in New Zealand than we're seeing in, in, in Australia. I mean, in broad terms, they both took a, a, an approach that was necessary to try and contain the virus. A lot of it was about closing borders. But yes, there was that difference in terms of the, the, the extent to which New Zealand locked down. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the government here came under some criticism from people who felt that the Australian approach, uh, approach was more appropriate, that our approach was too heavy-handed and that in Australia where construction could continue, where schools remained open a little bit longer, it was a more appropriate response. What do you make of that criticism? Look, I think when we look back in retrospect, we're all going to make assessments about what should and shouldn't have been done. The key challenge here was that policymakers faced diabolical policy choices. I mean, and they had to do them extraordinarily quickly. This idea that you needed to contain the virus, to keep fatalities lower, to keep uh, hospitals and, and, and health systems from being overwhelmed. But at the same time, you, of course, were delivering a, a huge negative economic shock, no matter how it, you squared it away. A lot of uncertainty, a lot of decisions made very rapidly. I think in both cases we should be sitting back and thinking both countries have managed to contain the virus. Um, mm. We're at very low levels of active cases now. We're able to reopen both of our economies. And if you compare where Australia and New Zealand are at compared to the rest of the world, compared to the rest of the Western world right now, it's actually extraordinarily positive uh, where, where we stand. Can you, can you just talk us through the recovery a little bit and what you're forecasting? You said that New Zealand is likely to experience a stronger economic contract in the second quarter of this year than Australia, but probably a, a stronger spring back as well. 
Well, that's right. So for second quarter GDP, we've got a much larger decline in New Zealand's GDP than we have for Australia's. Um, but likewise, when we look at third quarter GDP, we've got a very strong bounce back in New Zealand, whereas in Australia, we've basically got it stabilising. So there's a much larger dip and a much larger bounce back. You might want to call New Zealand's story a lot more V-shaped uh, than the than the U-shaped sort of recovery we're expecting for New Zealand. And, and in part, that's just a consequence of the policy measure, measures that were taken and the fact that there's been a lot more, there's been a lockdown in New Zealand uh, rather than a, a suppression and social distancing measure, measures that were applied in Australia. So 12 or 24 months down the track, how will the economies compare? Look, we think both economies are going to be in a position where GDP will be lower than it would otherwise have been without the crisis. Uh, we think both economies are going to suffer mainly from the fact that the borders, of course, are closed. Both Australia and New Zealand have benefited a great deal in recent years from inward migration, from tourism, from e education exports, and those industries are stalling for the moment. Uh, and we think that even when we look towards the end of 2021, which is where we forecast to, um, that those stories are still going to be quite different and something will have been lost along the way. I think the other way to put it is we're expecting the unemployment rate to rise mm. in both countries quite sharply uh, and then to fall but fall more slowly so that it's still higher at the end of 2021 than it would otherwise have been um, if COVID-19 hadn't arrived, that the crisis hadn't, hadn't arrived. When you compare the structure of our export economies, and New Zealand's largest export industry is tourism and international tourism has been effectively wiped out overnight. Is New Zealand more vulnerable to this sort of shock than Australia? It, it is more vulnerable to that particular shock, most certainly. Uh, but there's a there's a really interesting solution here that's going to make a big difference to New Zealand, and that is the possibility that you might get the Trans-Tasman bubble opened up, and that is travel across the Tasman from Australia to mm -hmm. New Zealand. Now, that's not as big a deal for Australia because New Zealand's economy is only one-seventh the size of Australia's, but it, it could be a really big deal for New Zealand. Uh, in 2019, uh, Australians spent uh, almost $50 billion on international travel. Four of it went to New Zealand. But if we are in a world now where Australians can't travel to other countries, but they can travel to New Zealand, you'd expect a lot of that money get, might get redirected towards New Zealand. And that would be a really big economic story for New Zealand. Will Australians want to travel? I think they will, and I think when we start to release the uh, the, the, the restrictions on people travelling across states, borders, for example, because they're, they're all in place at the moment for most of the states in Australia, I think we will see people start to travel uh, interstate in Australia, and I think if we were to see, uh, and, and we're expecting that at some point we will see um, travel, travel allowed across the Tasman, that mm. there'd be a lot more travel uh, back and forth from New Zealand and, and to Australia. Um, so we're expecting that this story could actually quite be quite a big one. One way to put it is the, the Aussie tourists may very well save the New Zealand tourism industry in, 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 a, in a pretty big way if, if, that, if that, that's able to get going. It, it, you know, here in New Zealand, the, the government is already making moves to promote domestic tourism to the New Zealand market. How patriotic are Australian tourists, though? Are, are they more likely to want to travel interstate and spend money internally rather than crossing the Tasman? 
The key story here is the scale. It's the scale. It's, you know, that Australians travel more abroad than foreigners come to Australia. Australia uh, is a net importer of tourism services. And so even if you take just a small proportion of the amount that Australians would normally spend when they travel to other countries mm. uh, and, and put that into the domestic market or indeed pushed it over into the New Zealand market, it's a really big deal. And as a, in terms of its scale, as I say, if, if only 10 per cent of the spend that Australians typically take to international markets is drawn over to New Zealand rather than into the other countries that it might go to, that would be close to 1.5% of New Zealand's GDP. It's a, it's a really big uh, amount if, if it gets redirected towards New Zealand or, or, or to domestic travel in Australia. That being said, it all comes down to how quickly we can establish this so-called trans-Tasman bubble, doesn't it? I see the Queensland Premier today saying it might be September until Queensland accepts some domestic tourists from New South Wales or Victoria. How quickly do you think the bubble could be established? Well, this is the, the question, and, and I don't really know, no-one knows the answer to this, but if you, if you look at the case numbers for COVID-19, obviously uh, they're falling quite dramatically in, in New Zealand. I think you last, the last number I saw, you were down to 45 active cases. Today you had no, no, zero new cases, um, and so they're very low. And then if you look at Australia, actually the best way to think about this is to break it up based on the states. Um, there are two states in Australia, or two states and territories, where there are no cases of COVID-19. COVID-19. There are no mm. active cases. Uh, there are four more where there are less than 20 active cases, and, you, and, and Queensland is one of those. So really, at the moment, the, the, the larger quantity of active cases are in New South Wales and Victoria. The story is getting better in those two states as well. But it would, it would be reasonable to think that we're close to elimination in some of our states. So travel between those states and New Zealand should be reasonable on, on, the base, on, on that sort of basis, you would have thought, um, within, within a reasonable amount of time. And Paul, what about once we get past the immediate response to COVID-19, are there areas that you think uh, New Zealand and Australia could be cooperating more when it comes to economic innovation, for example? There is a lot of cooperation between Australia and New Zealand already, um, and I think it would be, you know, in this in a world where we're seeing um, uh, a lot of closing down of borders, certainly to travel at the moment, and, and rising trade protectionism around the world, the fact that Australia and New Zealand have got these strong ties um, is, is going to be very powerful, I think, in terms of affecting both, both economies, but in particular it's going to be very important for New Zealand, being the much smaller economy relative to Australia. What are the important lessons, do you think, for New Zealand through this experience? You famously, of course, coined the New Zealand economy as the rock star economy five or six years ago. But do you think perhaps our economy has been somewhat too dependent on a, a few sectors or on China? Look, I think one of the main lessons that we can look back and say is that we should be very thankful that, that both New Zealand and Australia have had their budgets in order. They've had such uh, low levels of government debt that they've had the capacity, when needed, to step up and deliver enormous fiscal support for the economy in the face of what is a, 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 you know, an unprecedented shock to the global economy and something that you, know, you can think of as once in a generation or once in a century. Both governments, both in New Zealand and Australia, have had the capacity to step up. And 
and deliver really large amounts of fiscal stimulus because of uh, the way they, they, had, uh, they, they kept those debt levels uh, lower and, and, and kept good budget positions earlier. So I think that's one of the key things. So one of the key things to strive for um, once we are out of this and the economies are back to growing is, is to once again recharge those fiscal positions and be ready uh, for the next shock that might come along. So that's going to take many years, but I think that's what uh, we, we, we ought to be striving for. That's Paul Bloxham from HSBC. Stay with us, we'll have your feedback after the break. Kia ora te whana, welcome back. Council rate hikes? No thank you, said most of you. We got a lot of feedback on Fena Owen's story about the council's proposing rate increases this year. Nathan Lowe posted on Facebook, rates reduction is the required option. Sharon Lowden said, no, my business is affected by COVID-19, so that will possibly be the last straw. Cynthia Garten says rates should be frozen for at least two years to allow ratepayers time to adjust to new conditions, i.e. business closures and loss of employment. But some of you are in favour. Michael Nolan says we already have a massive infrastructure deficit from years of rates being seen as some form of cancer. Jean uh, Jeanette Fitzgerald says... What is it you are prepared to go without? Less mowing of parks and reserves, people losing jobs, no new facilities? We will continue the debate online. For now, though, Kumatu, that is us. Thanks for watching and Namihi Kia Koto Inga Karede. Thanks for your contributions. Thanks to the QA team. Tonight is back. It's up next. We'll see you next Monday evening at 9.25. QA is made with the support of New Zealand on here.